Soccer England. You're gonna have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, man. This is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right. Play ball. My name is Ryan. Funny name for a podcaster I know. And I'm welcoming you to the 83rd edition of Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday review of sports films that came out long ago. This bloody episode, like all of our previous ones, will have enough spoilers to fill up the Thames. I already said I'm Ryan Ellis, and here's the stylish bad boy Yardy, Lord Chris D. Gregorio. You're back to being a lord because we're in England. Well, thank you. It was insulting to have my title stripped for me for those few episodes, and it's good to be back to my proper status, though... I have to say, as much as I appreciate a secure recording environment, Ryan, I would appreciate it if in future I can find a way to get past your security measures that doesn't involve me dressing up as an Orthodox Jewish man because it's just a pain in the butt. These three attack dogs, I get it. They only respond to one ethnicity type, but nonetheless, that was something else. Two of them have swallowed diamonds since you got here. The two boys love food so much. <laughs> Looks like food to me. I might as well eat it. <laughs> no, snatch. Bad snatch. Now, I thought you were going to give us a little bit of insight with that intro into the origin of your name, Ryan, that maybe your parents told you you were named after somebody tough, but it was really like a Ryan Gosling character that they were named after, much like Tommy is to Turkish. I can't be Ryan Gosling because I'm older than him. Unless there's some sort of time paradox at play here, but granted. My parents are the logical people to have traveled in the DeLorean <laughs> and gone back in time and named me because of Ryan Gosling. I've always said, if anybody... It would be your parents. Completely agree. Right, right. Ednet! I briefly considered trying a Cockney accent in this episode, but every time I attempted it before we started recording, I just immediately ended up in some sort of like bad Australian accent instead. I will leave the voice acting to Ryan. It's not my purview. My purview is clearly the bad dad joke, so I think that's where I'll stick. Know your strengths. Yeah. Well, open up your beer and have a strengthening moment. What do you got over there? Just one of my totally unrelated and typically manly beers, this Aloha Sour from Side Launch, fruit-based sour beer, you know, again, my strength, right? My comfort zone. Well, that sounds delicious. I do have a CC and diet. This is my custom, although I had a beer two weeks ago without limits. Oh, I just thought of something right now, mentioning a previous podcast. I mentioned oh. to you on something, maybe without limits, but one of the recent ones. No, it must have been Ford versus Ferrari about rubbing his race and that whole thing and Days of Thunder and how they just bash into each other. That's right. Yeah. I asked my dad when we were seeing them around his birthday early in July if stock cars actually do that when they're racing. And he said that they do. The last lap, at least, it's a free-for-all. He watches that stuff. I never do. He's more of an authority than I could ever be. And he says that at least in the last lap, rubbing his racing is very real. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. And like I said, if anybody's going to know about cars racing or potentially time traveling in a vintage 1980s automobile, it's going to be Papa Ellis. So I <laughs> entirely buy that. Not that I particularly doubted it in the moment, but it's nice to have this kind of confirmation. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel comforted by it. Okay. Well, let's talk about the movie at hand here, which has nothing to do with my parents whatsoever. Damn it. Although I think Ellis is an English name. There go all my notes then. Oh, crap. <laughs> 
So Lock, Stock, and Six Stolen Diamonds, which was the name of the movie, the working title at least of the movie, although I don't know where the six stolen diamonds come from, but that's what it says on the IMDb. Well, they do grab more than one diamond. When Benicio Del Toro busts the diamond shop in Antwerp or whatever, they grab a bunch of the smaller diamonds and we see him pawning them later, but it's always that... That's where six comes from then, okay. 84-carat diamond that becomes the focus of the movie. Though. What an eyesore! <laughs> the largest <laughs> cubic zirconia. <laughs> Before we delve too much into the movie, I just want to ask you a question, because it doesn't really apply to this movie specifically, necessarily, but it just came to mind for some reason when I was watching that opening scene with the Orthodox Jewish gang busting into the diamond shop. Benito Del Toro is not an Orthodox Jewish person. He should be more woke than that. 21 years ago. Yeah. Why didn't he know those things? It strikes me as weird now, at least, thinking about movies using diamonds either as the heist target or as the mode of transferring wealth the more you know about the diamond industry and how little these things are actually worth if it's not being sold to you from like a jewelry shop granted if you have a bloody 84 karat diamond Mm -hmm. that's going to go to some black market buyer for a crap ton of money they can say they have the biggest diamond in the world or something i get that but just as like a general thing why diamonds wouldn't like gold bars make more sense i get they're bigger and heavier that's probably why. I gotta crack this. Maybe it'll be Bitcoin heists in the future. It will be, probably. Well, there are plenty of movies, by the way, with gold in them, but diamonds is definitely a common theme. And this is definitely a takeoff on Tarantino-type movies, more so probably Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It's diet Pulp Fiction, and I would say extremely watered-down diet Pulp Fiction, despite Guy Ritchie's efforts. But the storyline, we never see them, but the storyline in Reservoir Dogs is they stole diamonds. Oh. I'd totally forgotten that. So the movie was released in the UK in the late summer of 2000. That was given a slow release by Screen Gems in December 2000 over here. I remember seeing it in the theater and it was a big audience film, especially one guy. He got more jokes than I did. I laughed. This guy laughed at almost everything. And it did make nearly $84 million worldwide. So clearly, Guy Ritchie's second film after Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which was not a huge hit, I don't think. This was, though, worldwide. What was its budget? Didn't look at that. <laughs> I could in a second while you talk. Dun, dun, dun. You're not talking. Where is the budget? Oh, it says it was six million pounds. Wow. I'm shocked it's that low, actually, even for a 2000 era movie. I also saw this movie in the theater when it came out. And quite frankly, this is one of those movies where the older I get, the newer I assume this movie is because I think, well, I saw this in the theater when I was an adult, right? So if you had asked me before we did this, when did Snatch come out? Or all the movies I associate with it because of its stars and its time frame. So like your Ocean's Eleven and Fight Club and all that kind of stuff. I would have said mid-2000s, 2005, 6, 7. But of course, like you said, this is 2000. And as soon as that hit home, I'm like, oh, I'm so old. And then nothing made me feel older than seeing peak physical fitness Brad Pitt on the screen as I turn into this middle-aged, <laughs> totally without any exercise kind of dude, I'm like, oh, my self-esteem just took a massive hit watching this movie. <laughs> well, he is paid to do these things. And he was also coming off of Fight Club. That was his previous film. Troy, too, right? It was around this time? No, that was 2004. Okay, a little bit later. But I'm sure he stayed in great shape for movies just like Troy. But he was coming off of Fight Club. And he was a little bit reluctant to play a, a fighter again and actually is a boxer in this. So like we said two weeks ago, is it really a boxing movie? There's plenty of boxing in it. So yeah, I think it fits the mold. We're not really stretching to put this in the category of a sports film. Yeah, it's, But it's, Pitt didn't really want to do another boxing movie, but he wanted to work with Guy Ritchie. We're not stretching it too much. It's like one of those small kicks that they give to Tyrone to get him into the boot of the car. It's just a light nudge to fit it into the mold of a sports movie. Just wait till two weeks from now when it's a lot more than a light nudge. Yeah, there's going to be some bone breaking and bending (laughs) of limbs to get into that mold. 
this movie, if nothing else, reminded me of the specific era in which it was filmed. Just the tone of it, the look, mm-hmm. the feel, the super slick, hip, cool kind of vibe that so many movies through at least the early and mid 2000s tried to emulate, and most of them just failed. But this one and Ocean's Eleven, to me, feels like it kicked off that drive. Let's do something hyper cool and self-aware, slick kind of feel, you know? I think this succeeds at that. I think Ocean's Eleven maybe succeeds a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Do you think it succeeds at least as well as its predecessor, Lock, Snock, and Two Smoking Barrels I prefer this. Okay. I I was never a big Lock, Stock guy. I'll say right now what I was going to say later, which is that I'm not a big Guy Ritchie guy. I know a lot of his films... You're not a big guy guy? I'm not a guy guy. A lot of his films were dumped on pretty hard, including Swept Away, which no one liked. Madonna was in that, his wife, so that's probably why people were pushing back so hard. How dare you work with your wife? That's a dumb reason not to like a movie, but it wasn't very good. I do prefer his producer, Matthew Vaughn, as a director. I Vaughn started directing, I think his very first film may have been Layer Cake. I guess a heist film, but definitely a crime film. I love that movie. One Daniel of my favorite Craig. movies of that year... Made my top 10 list, one of my favorite movies of Vaughn's, but he also did other good stuff I've liked an awful lot. He did X-Men First Class, which is one of the better later on X-Men films, and I liked Stardust, which no one saw. I think Vaughn's a better director than Guy Ritchie is. But of Ritchie's filmography, this is the best movie. And yet, watching it again, 21 years after I first saw it, I wouldn't say I was lost, but I wasn't really keeping up with some of the developments because they move so fast. And I've seen this movie three or maybe even four times, but it's been a while. But the other thing I would say about it is that compiling my notes today, I didn't really care. You know, it's not- I had a good time and I went, meh. Yeah. If you didn't say it, I was going to say exactly the same thing. I've seen this probably more than three or four times. So it wasn't that I got lost with the plot. It does move very quickly. But ultimately, yeah, I didn't really care. The plot is just an excuse to get these characters from point A to point B to point C and have them interact in sort of weird and goofy ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it succeeds in that. I don't think you really necessarily have to care about the plot because ultimately, Turkish and Tommy finish right where they began and they're really the only two characters you should care about at all. The rest of them are just in it for very particular reasons. For color. For color, yeah, exactly. Some really good character actors in this movie. Yeah. Obviously Pitt, but also Vinnie Jones. Arguably steals the whole film as Bullet Tooth Tony. (laughs) Bullet Tooth Tony. Dennis Farina, who was so great in Get Shorty a few years before. It's another crime film, of course. Yeah. Playing effectively the same character. It might as well be the same character. He's a type. Don't go to England. (laughs) That great line. And then ends up going back. The last shot of the movie is him heading back to England to either do business or to kill Tommy and Turkish. I'm not really sure which. I don't think you're supposed to know which just yet. Because he can do either. Could do either one. He seems like a reasonable enough guy sometimes, but he also does kill people in this movie. Most of them do. And they do interact with each other without even knowing sometimes. Again, sort of like Pulp Fiction. This is one of the reasons why it shocked me that the budget for the movie was so low. Even though there's no expensive set pieces here, it's shot in either open fields or just scummy little run-down areas of probably London or somewhere in that neighborhood. It was all around London. Yeah. And Pitt had to have done this for a price, probably as little as possible, because he wanted to work with Richie. So he probably said, yeah, I'll go show up with you guys in a supporting role, work for a few weeks. I'll take very little money. Nobody would have got paid very much on this, because apart from Pitt, nobody's a headlining star. At this point, especially, obviously Jason Statham now. But at the time, he wasn't. Statham was still new to films. Yeah, I was going to say, this had to be one of his earliest. So you're not paying the cast that much, despite the fact this is a big cast of almost all men. (laughs) But there are some black guys, at least. you got three guys who are black who have pretty major roles in this. 
again, this is a movie we're talking about 20 plus years after the fact, so trying to apply the notion of being a woke production or something is probably... It's always a futile gesture. We do it, Bev and I do it, but sometimes it annoys me hearing myself speak when I edit the thing and think, what does it really matter? The movie was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. They didn't know these things. We didn't know these things 10 years ago. Yeah, and you can make arguments that maybe we should have, but the fact is they didn't. But even if that's... What bothers you about this movie when it comes to the woke stuff, though? No, no, it doesn't. But what I'm saying is, A, we're just doing it 20 years after the fact. We're not talking about a movie that was made in 2020. But also the subject matter of this particular movie is a bunch of scummy, low-life men in London. And you're talking about things like illicit boxing matches and jewelry store heists. The mob, thieves. You can make an argument that, yes, there could be places where you could insert more female characters. But I think, to be honest with you, for the most part, it might have just felt forced if they did. There weren't many logical circumstances in which there were substantial female roles to be had in this movie. If you really wanted to, you could do the 2022 remake of this movie using all female cast. That'd be fun. I think it would be fun. I would apply the same logic, because if you're going to have an illicit boxing ring, you're probably not going to have mixed gender boxing. So if you're doing it with a female cast, all of the participants in the boxing are going to be female. Their managers may well be female. All the crime bosses can be female. Do that. That's absolutely cool. But... I would never knock this movie because of its lack of female characters just for the reasons I wouldn't knock a remake if it was an all-female cast. It's just like one of those movies that makes a little bit of sense to have a singular gender across most of its roles, I think. Well, this does play into my nutshell. Oh. So, Snatch, in a nutshell. Mushmouth pugilist loses Mima in a fire, so he and his friends murder everyone even remotely responsible. Yeah. Those mob guys pay. The pikeys. I thought they were saying pikers, but it's pikeys. And that apparently is a slur. Gypsies. Oh. As we've learned in recent years, maybe people knew this 25, 40, 50 years ago. But apparently gypsies is also a bit of a slur. It is a slur. But yeah. they're called both of those things in this film. They're definitely just travelers. They don't hang in one place. And at That's the right. end, they've taken off after they've committed an awful lot of murders. Justifiable, probably. And people that won't be missed because they're mostly mob people and bad guys, especially Bricktop's gang. You know who could have played Bricktop rather than Alan Ford, who's quite effective, by the way. And the guy's been in plenty of movies, including Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Sean Connery. They tried to get no. him. He saw Lockstock. He said, I like your movie, but you can't afford me. I love me some Sean Connery in every era of his career, but I also love Bricktop. Bricktop is my favorite character in this movie, bar none. In a movie where I really enjoy a number of the characters. What about Brothers of He's a proud boxer. Yeah, Brad Pitt's fun. I understand that. He's fun, but there's something about Bricktop, about just being this totally skeezy little old white dude who's got everyone trembling in fear of his pigs. And I don't know the actor at all beyond this movie. So maybe this is a thing he does, just generally speaking, but. Whatever choice was made to have him say his lines in the way he does, just to really emphasize this disgusting, yellowed grill of teeth that he has, it's like he leans into the camera with his mouth first whenever he's delivering a line, and that's the lasting impression you get of this dude. I love everything he does. So Connery, in your mind, couldn't have done that, and you're probably right. I agree. It would have been distracting to look at Connery do anything like that. Agreed. This is one of the few instances when I would say I'm happy that Sean Connery did not take that role because it was better served in an actor that's probably less well-known, at least in North America, mm-hmm. than Connery would be. Ford's done plenty of films, like I said, Lockstock, and something called Gloves Off, which is a boxing film, I guess. Well, maybe we'll see him again sometime in the future. Maybe we will one day. Well, we just recently saw Stephen Graham, who does play Tommy. I was going to say. And he was yeah. in The Damned United. We covered that back in May. 
And he's also in a movie called Goal, or IMDb says, Goal! Goal! Exclamation mark. I assume it's about soccer also. I think so. And then, of course, Brad Pitt was in Moneyball. And we've talked about him plenty where he could have been in other sports movies. Statham, I don't think he's got any other sports movies on his resume. I was looking. I couldn't see any others except his diving pass. So he's a legit diver. You can see footage of him. Possibly the Olympics, but at least some kind of championships. I think qualifying. I don't think he ever participated in the Olympics itself. Okay. But you're right. He was a national level diver for Britain, right? And that paid off when he was in the Meg, where he yeah. could do an awful lot of watery diving scenes. And he was also in Lockstock, a lot of these actors were. I haven't talked about the Rotten Tomatoes numbers. They're pretty good. Not incredible. The audience numbers are very good, though. 93% of audiences. The critics, though, 73%. 6.4 to 10 was the average and the strength of 142 reviews. And when I saw this in 2000, I gave it an 8. I looked at my old archives and, okay, I wouldn't give it an 8 anymore, but probably a solid 7, because even though I didn't really care looking back several days after watching it, I can't deny I was entertained then and now. It's mm -hmm. also 118th on the IMDb 250. You and I have not covered that many sports movies that have made the IMDb 250, but this did. And it was 82nd at the box office in 2000. We've covered a ton of movies from that year, including Remember the Titans, which was 18th. We covered that, I think, last year when it was 20 years old. Bring It On, which was 37th. <laughs> we did that, didn't we? And The Replacements, which was 57th. And there's more than that, but those ones. Oh, Girl Fight, we also covered last year, was in 2000. Right. I won't give my rating just yet, but I think I'm a little bit higher than you. I already agreed with your thoughts on caring or not caring about the plot. But the reason this movie works where so many other movies of the same era that attempted to mimic the glossy feel failed is because the characters, even the ones that we already said, don't really have much purpose in this, aside from their own little tiny plots that add color to the movie, but ultimately don't really matter in the grander scheme of the plot such as it is. Each one of those characters, and I don't know if this is the actor's choice or scripted or what, they all have these little idiosyncrasies that are rarely commented on but it seems to give each character a little bit more life and depth than just being the cardboard cutouts that they could be, mm -hmm. right? And the things that struck me watching it this time that I don't think I ever really picked up on that much in the past, but I really enjoyed in this watch, were things like the fact that Turkish, not constantly, but very often just has a bottle of milk that he's drinking out of, and it's never commented on, except for one cut-to scene where we get Tommy talking to Turkish about how he shouldn't have milk in his coffee because humans haven't evolved enough to digest it yet and then that leads to the whole i have <laughs> yeah you <laughs> i drink milk all the time and i've never you're, had a problem with it you're the real life turkish in so many <laughs> ways but if that were like a lot of movies that would be a character quirk that everyone was always calling him out on like turkish what the hell's wrong with you you're always drinking a bottle of not even a glass a bottle of milk <laughs> come on man but things like that but it does pay off though in a way because that's what gets on the windshield of one of the other cars all three yeah. guys are driving towards each other at one point or more than three guys but three cars are driving towards each other at one point Boris is in the trunk of one of them, and he's walking, and he gets run over, but still doesn't die. Yeah. But the milk is the reason why an accident happens. Yeah, because, because that's thrown that, out the window. That's when Tommy throws it out the window after giving him the whole explanation about... That's why it's in there, then. I love the way that it appears, if you pay attention to the movie, in at least three scenes before that car scene, he's just walking along, drinking a bottle of milk while he's dealing with stuff, right? And again, nobody ever mentions it. Or things like the fact that Boris the Blade shows up to the pawn shop, right? And this is when he pays off the three black gangsters for having stolen the diamond. He kills Benicio del Toro and realizes, oh, I need this guy's hand cut off because he's strapped to the thing. 
and uncommented on, just throws back his jacket and doesn't have a knife. He has right. like Good point. a whole butcher's cleaver that he just uses, slips back in. Nobody says anything. He just cuts the guy's arm off with his enormous butcher cleaver. <laughs> He's the British Batman. He comes prepared. <laughs> he comes prepared. It's awesome. <laughs> you never know when he might need a cleaver to cut off somebody's arm. I mean, those kinds of stupid quirks I just love about this movie, and they typically pay off so well. The whole Tyrone character who's got the totally undeserved confidence in himself all the time. If you really wanted to, you could cite one example for every character where there's just a character trait that is featured. And sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't, but it's just there. I think it adds a lot more life to this movie than we see in a lot of those kinds of similar types of movies around this era. Those Tarantino knockoffs, yeah. yeah. I didn't know who Lenny James was every other time I saw this movie until this time. But now I know him from Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead. He's on that now. I don't watch Fear the Walking Dead, but he went to that show. I don't know how he got from wherever they are, Georgia, Washington, he, Virginia. He's the pawn shop owner that yeah. works with, with... He's the leader of the Finney three guys. And, yeah. What's his name? Not Abe. Um, Saul. Saul, yeah. Short for Saul. Solomon. One of them calls him. I think the other guy calls him Solomon at one point. So that's why it's S-O-L. Right. <laughs> but I was impressed by his performance. I thought he was pretty solid. And I'd forgotten how early in the movie Del Toro is killed off. So early. <laughs> so you get stunt casting with Pitt and you get almost stunt casting with del toro because he was a pretty big name too won the oscar this year the same year as this for traffic was it this year and we covered him before in the fan fairly major role but he is gone in 40 minutes maybe sooner he steals a diamond effectively in the opening scene goes to london and actually this is another fun scene that goes totally uncommented on but he's on the phone with dennis farina about Mm -hmm. having stolen the diamond while he's at the tailor and they're having a conversation in real time Mm -hmm. each cut the wardrobe change yeah from farina to Mm -hmm. del Toro, the wardrobe entirely changes at least four times Yeah, yeah got an entirely new outfit in in three seconds and i love that because later on when he's in the van the scene where tyrone accidentally again unduly confident about his getaway driving skills backs the car up into the van and knocks Del Toro over and traps him in the van. He's got that whole wardrobe on a rack inside the van. Right, That's he does, what he's doesn't he? trying on before he goes into the... That's what the gambling's for. He yeah. needs so many clothes. Exactly. These kinds of silly moments that pay off later are just so much fun to me. Well, Del Toro in this movie is definitely Fred Flintstone. We've talked about that, I think, a few other times in the films we've covered. Bet, 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 bet. <laughs> Bit of a gambling holic. His eyes get big when he hears about bets, and that's why cousin Avi, 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 whatever, Dennis Abby? Farina. I think it's Abby. Right? Avi. So. Oh, was it Avi? Maybe it's Avi. Yeah. Well, he's Jewish, right? Isn't he wearing the yarmulke at he one is point? The yarmulke, yeah. yeah. But Farina goes over to England from New York that's because right. he can't trust this gambling holic. Just like he goes later to get the diamond back at the end of the film because he can't trust these people he doesn't even know. I don't think he ever met those guys either. He met a lot of people in the course of this story. The three black guys. Of course he spent a lot of time with bullet tooth tony they got along pretty well but he ends up dead too vinnie jones i like the little turnaround with that too when they introduce i also forgot like you forgot how early del toro got wiped out i forgot how late vinnie jones shows up in this movie because mm-hmm. it's like a good hour before we even hear about bullet tooth tony and then his backstory but i like the fact that they make him out when they introduce him to dennis farina's character to be this unkillable wild card of a hitman type guy to try to track down these people for Dennis Farina. But then we meet Bullet Tony, and not only is he not some sort of wild card, he's the most professional guy in the entire movie. He does exactly what he says he's going to do at all times. Which is not a Vinnie Jones staple. Vinnie Jones is exactly. usually the wild card. Yeah. Not only is he not unkillable, he dies, and the guy that he actively tries to kill the most, the Russian Boris, just won't die. 
he shoots the guy like 18 times. That's a fun bit. While, while, while the Russian dude's cursing at him the whole time. Is that the only reason why he doesn't kill Dennis Farina in that moment? Is he tries to shoot him once and then he's at a bullet. He says, oh, it's your lucky day. And then he walks away mm-hmm. or something. Isn't that how that all plays out? I think out? you're right. Well, yeah, because he runs out of bullets. I know that part. I made a note about that. Yeah, Jones commands the movie, arguably steals it. He's an ex-soccer player. We said that Statham was a diver. So Jones is known for soccer. And apparently the last scene he has in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels he was banging a guy's head into a car door at the end of that movie. The first oh, time in this movie it? we see him, he's banging a guy's head in a car door. So he's got to move. Not playing the same character, I don't think, but yeah. Okay, so it is a sort of boxing movie, and the biggest star in the movie, we've talked about him a little bit, but it is funny. They definitely used him in the trailers. One of the reasons they got people to go see this movie was, hey, it's Brad Pitt, but also the scene where they get meta, Tommy and Turkish turn away from him, and I know this is in the trailer. Did you understand a single word? <laughs> Because Pitt is doing what people were saying about Lockstock, which is, what in the world are these people saying? They got a guy in this movie, well, others too, but especially Pitt deliberately doing it so far over the top. Sometimes you get what he's saying, I think. I've seen the movie several times, granted, but you don't understand what he's saying, but you know inherently what it is. It's like if somebody has had a stroke or they don't speak the language very well and you get enough of the tone, you get enough of the words they are saying to understand it. But it is a play on Lockstock where nobody could understand what they were saying, unless, I guess, if they're from these parts of England with this wild slang. We think of the amount of slang we have over in North America, especially USA. That is a very interesting country for a lot of reasons, as much as I slag on them. But they have so many accents for one country. Yeah. You don't think of London as having that many. You think of the posh Queen's English, King's English, whatever you want to call it. You think of the Cockney. The but BBC there are accent. so many levels beyond that. There's more of the working class, not quite Cockney. Yeah. And the way these guys talk and the way the Pitt talks, which isn't even the same as what Turkish is doing. So obviously they have a lot of accents as well. But Pitt is funny in this movie. And I yes. love the routine of him hitting people, knocking them out with one shot and having a very million dollar baby-esque moment. Although I guess that movie was maybe playing off this one because it came later. Where in the fight, the second time, he knocks somebody with one punch. What are you doing? Look on their face, Tommy and Turkish. He just shrugs like she does to, meaning Maggie does to Clint Eastwood in Million Dollar Baby. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like his character a lot i don't know what the intention necessarily is i didn't think about the meta aspect of it that's probably very true i always thought that this like band of travelers was meant to be irish they travel through the uk right they were in a bunch of caravans okay forgive me i'm just lumping them all together <laughs> uk-ish people no i could be wrong about that i don't know what accent brad pitt was attempting to do for this role it just always struck me as very mumbled irish and i think part of the intention of the performance is that the character itself he knows it's self-aware like you said at certain points and i think the character mickey is aware of how indecipherable a lot of people find the traveler accent and his in particular so scenes like the one you just described where he's telling turkish and tommy yeah i'll do this fight but you got to buy my mom this twice as big caravan he lists off a litany of added features and colors and stuff and it gets more and more indecipherable as he goes through it and then that's when they turn away and say did you understand a word of that the camera turns back to brad pitt and his group of buddies and they're laughing amongst themselves and i always kind of took that as they're just messing with these guys he just gets intentionally more garbled to the point where he's actually not saying words anymore and then just gets turkish to say yeah i get you mickey loud and clear so I think that's part of it, too, is at various points, the character himself is just like, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, sure, Mickey, whatever you want, man, that's cool, right? So he's an actor playing a character 
in the movie. I've always loved that one. Actors have to play actors. I think so. That's the way I always interpreted it. Anyway. I think you might be right. I like the way that he portrays the fighting. The first two fights in this movie are basically just like... Cold cocks. Cold cocks. It may be smaller, but Pitt made it believable a year before. Maybe that's one reason why you cast him in Snatch after Fight Club. Oh, yeah. Maybe they didn't know about Fight Club at the time. It would have been in production. Pitt seems believable enough in both movies as somebody who could kick your ass with one shot. For that role to work, it has to be somebody that's not terribly physically imposing, right? Because that's the whole reason you get wrangled in with Mickey to begin with is because you underestimate him based on his just raw size because he's super fit. Dear God, those abs, man. But he's not a huge dude. What is Brad Pitt? 5'10", maybe? He's not... He's probably half the size of at least one of the guys he fights. Well, Gorgeous Gorgeous George. George. (laughs) I guess maybe everybody fights then because he has, I guess, two actual fights and he knocks a Gorgeous George just for the hell of it in the camp. And every time, they are way bigger than he is. The actual last fight goes on a lot longer. And that's a good sequence. I like that. And I guess the idea there is that he was actually pretending he was getting his ass handed to him. There's that really vivid shot, super slow-mo, where he is literally flat in the air as he's flying after getting punched so hard. It's a great shot. But the story online talks about how all of that was him just waiting. He was rope-a-doping effectively so they could buy time to kill Bricktop's guys out of revenge for killing Mima. Yeah, I've talked a couple times about the payoff. This movie sets things up and then sometimes pays it off anyway. I think generally does. You're probably right. The more we've talked about it, the more I've come around to the fact that it generally does. And of course, you already talked about in the first two fights, he just cold cocks his opponents one shot. And in particular, the second fight when he was meant to take a dive for Bricktop in the fourth round. And that's when Turkish and Tommy give him the what the hell did you just do look. So in the third fight... The second actual fight, I guess, though, right? Because the first one's not a real fight. You're talking about Gorgeous George was a fight. Yes. Then he should take a dive and doesn't. But then yes. he take, should take a dive again and doesn't. Yeah, so the third fight in the movie, but the second actual underground boxing okay, right, match. Yeah. So, yeah. The MMA style, the Lionheart The Lionheart fight. style fight, yeah, exactly. So the second time he was meant to take a dive after his mother was killed in the burning caravan by Bricktop as revenge for not taking the dive the first time. Every time there's an end in a round, you just have Turkish just telling him, for God's sakes, don't knock him out. Don't knock him out. Don't knock him out. So as a viewer, you're thinking, all right, he's finally listening, presumably because he's scared that his whole little camp is going to get butchered by these guys that are sitting with AK-47s and vans outside if he fails to take a dive at the right time again. But they have a plan, though, so that's not going to happen. They're going to butcher them first. Which is why I love the fact that the movie paid off some of those earlier little planted seeds because you expect this seed to now be paid off in a certain way and it subverts your expectations, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like a fun little moment at the end of it. I say fun, like a bunch of people got butchered, (laughs) including Bricktop himself, but it's kind of a well-done little bit of screenwriting anyway. Guy Ritchie's killed a lot of people in his movies, I believe, over the years, and like Tarantino, has at least tried to make it fun. Tarantino does it better than anybody where he can yeah. make you laugh and also should make you horrified in some of the same moments. Reservoir Dogs has that torturous ear scene, but also an awful lot of laughs. And yet everybody in that movie, other than Mr. Pink, is dead. Everyone we care about, at least, is dead at the end of it. I really like the way these individual small characters somehow get some sort of life blown into them and developed even a little bit in a way that we don't see a lot. Tommy is a guy that is a very one-note character for the most part. He's just the sidekick to Turkish, and he's the guy that, for some reason, everybody who's not Turkish just instinctively hates. Everybody he interacts with sneers at him. So much screen time for Stephen Graham, and yet probably the least interesting character in the whole movie. Yeah, well, definitely the least interesting, for sure. Poor Stephen Graham. (laughs) Yeah. He had more screen to chew in The Damned United than he did here, but I mean, as a younger guy, he did an okay job. I liked the fact that he spends the entire movie 
trying to prove to everybody that just instinctively hates his guts. As they say, he's got the minerals, right? He's not the pretender that everyone seems to think he is. He belongs in this tough guy underground world. And then all of that is just, in a second, smashed to pieces when they show up at Boris the Butcher's place to try to confront him about a couple of different things, but try to confront him. And Boris, who's just coming back from being run over by the car, pays Tommy zero mind, just grabs him by the balls, drags him up the the front path of the house, and just slams him against the wall. And then that's the last we see of Tommy, basically, until the final fight with Brad, and then the final scene with the diamond. Tommy's whole pretension of being a tough guy is snuffed in the most (laughs) peremptory way you can possibly imagine. That fits, because if this movie has any message at all, and I don't really think it does, but they're all pretenders. They have no place in this world of crime and... Bullet Tooth Tony does. There are a few. Boris and Bullet Tooth Tony... Right. Cousin Abby, enough. Dennis Farina, enough. Dennis Farina, enough. But for the most part, the guys that actually belong get snuffed out. The one guy that actually comes away smelling like a bed of roses, essentially, is kind of Mickey, although mm-hmm. I guess his mother did get torched in a caravan. So. Yeah, she's she's more like a child. She's, 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 yeah, she's, she's, she's in a grave. And she's dead. No, it's not good. But aside from that, all of the pretenders make it out okay. Nobody really dies. I know that the three, Tyrone, Vinny, and Saul, get arrested for the body of Benicio Del Toro. But they're not dead. But all the tough guys get killed. Tommy and Turkish sort of get away and we think are probably going to be okay when it's all said and done. But we don't know what Avi's ultimate plan is. But it's a weird commentary on understanding who you are and where you belong kind of stuff you know what i mean and not straying from your particular niche stuff always goes wrong for these people when they cross the threshold into somebody else's world like when tommy goes (laughs) to the traveler's camp right that's when stuff goes wrong when they try to infiltrate this underground world of the mob instead of just sticking to their little slot thing and boxing fixing that's when stuff goes wrong even when Bricktop tries to stray outside of his little underground realm and start messing with the Travelers, that's when stuff goes wrong. There's weird little layers to this movie that you kind of pick at in a way that I hadn't really remembered until I watched it for this. Well, Guy Ritchie also did both Sherlock Holmes films. The first one is fun. I don't love the second one as much. The first one is quite a bit of fun. And a different take, of course, making Robert Downey Jr. A be the English guy. So many times, these iconic characters, an American plays an English character, or what's even more prevalent is an English person plays an American icon, like Batman with Christian Bale, for example. And there's a lot more examples than just that. But he did those two movies. They were a lot of fun. The first one especially was very successful. I think the second one may have been. And the Aladdin remake a couple of years ago with Will Smith, which I preferred to the Lion King remake they did. I saw them yeah. both on the plane when Bev and I came back on our last vacation, I think is when it was. I didn't love Aladdin, but at least it was a little different. If you're going to do it again, then make it a little bit different. Why do we have to see the exact same movie again? And I forgot it was Guy Ritchie until I'm watching the credits. and think, oh, that's right. He did this. And it was huge. So presumably Guy Ritchie's going to have a new career again, maybe doing those kinds of movies. He's made at least, probably more than this, but two monster hits then. The first Sherlock Holmes and Aladdin 2019. And he's making another Sherlock, right? They're making a third in that trilogy. Downey's available again. <laughs> After the Dr. Doolittle debacle, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're banging at his door. I meant because he's not doing the MCU films. He's not doing the MCU, he maybe yeah. will eventually, I guess, but at the moment he's not doing any more of those. Well, we mentioned, by the way, Boris the Blade. He maybe is also a pseudo-stealer of this movie. Well, he's a pseudo-stealer, at least. Because I think maybe Vinnie Jones is one of the surprising best things in it. Yeah. It's hard to say what the best thing is. Because they're all pretty good actors in this, but I guess it's pronounced Rade Sherbegia. 
He's an Eyes Wide Shut the year before this. I don't know if that's why he got this role. He's done a lot of movies. And I think at that point, he'd done movies where he was from, which is somewhere in Europe. I didn't look up where he's from. I think he might be Croatian, something like that. Okay. But he's also done a lot of one-offs in big franchises. I didn't write them all down, but you look at his resume and think, okay, he's got one movie in this series and one in that. I think he's in one Harry Potter and one of this and one of that. And he's pretty effective as Boris the Blade. And he's obviously very tough because he does last through an awful lot of violence until he's finally put down. Jason Fleming's another one. He's one of the guys in the group. I don't know if I can even point him out. Oh, I could point him out to you if we had the movie on the screen right now. But he was in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Another Jason guy Fleming. that has been in plenty of movies and a lot of the ones that Matthew Vaughn has directed. So the producer of this film. You've seen him in lots of things. Well, we'll click on him here. Yeah, I was trying to see which character he This was. guy. He's part of the... Oh, he's part of the Traveler. Mickey's mm-hmm. best buddy, always whispering in his ear. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You click on his name here. Is known for an IMDb. His first one is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Because he's Thomas movie. Button. Yeah, another pit movie. Right. Then Lockstock, Deep Rising, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, right. He's Henry Jekyll. That's and that. it. Yeah. That's his four known fours, let alone Snatch and some of the other films he's been in. There's a lot of faces in this movie, like Vinny, Robbie G, as we're seeing him right now, right? And some of the guys in Bricktop's foursome of mm-hmm. gang members. This movie is just populated with those people. Ewan Bremner is in this movie, too. He's in Train Spotting. He's the weird-looking yeah. dude in Train Spotting, which Bev and I covered a couple of years ago. This is also a movie that I forgot how much it made me laugh. And I laughed more at this movie than I did at some of the quote-unquote comedies that we've watched for this podcast in the past. If there's one scene I want to highlight, and this is why I wanted to bring it back to Boris for a moment, even though I will admit... It's stupid. It's really dumb. And you can probably see the setup a mile away. But when they realize that Boris has the diamond and they're talking to Bullet Tooth Tony about it, and Bullet Tooth Tony says, listen, guys, I know this dude. He's a bad dude. He was a deep cover agent for the KGB. He's been trained to do X, Y, and Z. You'll never find him. He's a ghost. And then immediately you get a call from the pawn shop and it's the two women that work there that say, there's a guy here with a deep Russian accent. And then you get Boris just turning almost like Kramer-esque looking in the people of Jerry's apartment, just staring into the security camera <laughs> immediately after Vinnie Jones is like, you're never going to find this guy. He's a ghost. And then there's his face. I'm like, okay, that's a dumb, obvious gag, but I like it. Within the context of the theme of this movie, it works. Like all these guys, in some ways, they're all very, very good at what they do, but also kind of bad at what they do. So I like it. Yeah, when Saul and his guys are trying to rob that place, the clerk takes his gun away from him. Yeah. She ends up with their giant gun, and then they're caught in the front. They would be trapped there, except Tyrone opens, opens the, the door. door for them. What do you guys do? And they end up with Benicio del Toro, who's got the diamond. Uh, you wanted to talk about the, the dog, the dog Daisy? which was also this movie was marketed around Brad Pitt, the accents, I guess. Statham obviously has plenty of screen time in the trailer, but then it's also marketed around the dog, because the snatch does come from no snatch, don't snatch, bad snatch. Thanks, the only time it's ever said in the movie, maybe twice. Then, yeah. Otherwise, it doesn't make a ton of sense why it's called Snatch. Obviously, it could have been a porn title, too. It almost certainly was after this movie came out. I guarantee you there's there's porn parodies somewhere. (laughs) I don't have that much to say about it, except that it's such an important character because it has the squeak toy inside of it. It snatched that earlier, again, setting up that it will snatch the diamond. And Avi's got the diamond, yet he's showing it off. I guess he doesn't realize the dog's going to take it from him. And then it ends up inside the dog, and a vet has to get out both the squeak toy and the diamond. That can't be cheap. We know that's not cheap. <laughs> kind of thing that could kill an animal if they dig around the side for that kind of stuff. But anyway, I just want to mention that that's an important character too. The dog is one of the key characters in this whole film. A lot of them are key, I guess, but it might be the key. The only reason the movie works at all is because of the dog's role in it. It eats the diamond, and that's what gets Turkish possibly out of Hawk when it's all said and done. But even in the scenes leading up to it, if the dog isn't there, 
does Turkish get arrested with Tommy by the police when they're trying to visit the caravan park after all of the travelers have left. And that's when we get that ridiculous scene of Tommy chasing Daisy around the empty lot and stuff like mm. that. Also, Farina would have left sooner because he had the diamond, but he right. can't because it's inside the dog's guts. And when they talk at the end of the movie about how they ultimately took the dog to the vet because Tommy couldn't take the squeaking anymore, which is another thing that is commented on when it happens, right? The dog just swallowed the squeaky toy? Yeah, I think he did. And then throughout the entire movie, nobody comments on it at all, except every time the dog is in the scene, it's just like a subtle squeaking happening whenever he's breathing. Which would never happen. Which would never happen, but it's like a silly thing that, again, much like the milk, just happens and goes uncommented on. But when they were talking about the vets, I was thinking of you, because nobody would know better the cost of these vet visits for a dog than you and Bev, mm -hmm. certainly. So yep. <laughs> I could just see the bill tally happening behind your eyeballs when you're watching this movie. Like, oh boy, that ain't cheap, guys. I know what that costs. These little lovers are so expensive. So the depiction of the sport, not realistic, obviously. No. But it is fun. It's a funny gag that Mickey can take such a beating in that last round. He's the brick hit house in this he movie. He is, yeah. But obviously he's doing that, at least according to the internet, to just rope-a-dope until he can get his guys, or let his guys have the time to kill off Bricktop's gang. But it's also a bit much that he can come back and win, whether he's playing possum or not. But it is a boxing movie, because you have a couple of actual boxing matches, so the depiction is not realistic, but okay. Yeah, it's over-the-top, goofy action in the way that most of his movies over top It fits goofy. the tone. If it was it's a serious tone. boxing match, it wouldn't fit the tone at all. <laughs> it suddenly turns into Million Dollar Baby all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, wow, that took a hard left. As far as can you score, well, not really, because there's Mima, and yeah. anybody else who's female? I don't know. It's got a very high body count, though, so if you get off on bloody murder, then maybe you can score. You get like a good bit of sweaty, rippling Brad Pitt abs in this. That so is true. You got that working for you, but one thing I do recall about Brad Pitt being interviewed when this movie was being made is that I think they actually put a very subtle little bit of nose prostheses on the bridge of his nose. My nose is so dainty normally that they had to give me a nose that looked like it would have been through at least a little bit of punishment. When they try to make Brad Pitt look beat up, he's still the prettiest man in existence. Mm -hmm. That's not fair. Well, in the mid-90s, he did those ugly boy roles rather than pretty boy roles in Seven and 12 Monkeys that same year after coming True. up to pretty boy roles. And even in those ugly boy roles, he still looks great because yeah, he's Brad Pitt. You gotta air, and in this too. Air quotes that ugly boy super right. hard. Well, I'd give this a 7.5 out of 10 because I can't deny I was entertained, even if I didn't remember much about it afterward. I always think of Roger Ebert's review of Aliens. He didn't like it. In fact, he said it made him feel bad. But he also gave it 3.5 stars because it achieved what it was supposed to. Yeah. He was reviewing the movie, not really how he felt about it, which is not how everyone does it. But I can respect that viewpoint. I don't know if I always do it that way with movies, but I would say the same thing here. I don't know if I'll watch this movie again for a long time. But I definitely have to say it was entertaining like it was the first few times I saw it. Probably a better theater movie overall, because I remember this being a raucous one, as was Ocean's Eleven the year after this. I saw that in the theater, too, and that also got great responses, so another pit movie, and you mentioned that earlier in the podcast. But you're going to go higher than 7.5, are you? I think I would go as high as 8 for this, even though this isn't a movie that you think of normally. If you think of, like, well, this movie I have to watch in the theater because it benefits from the huge screen or whatever. Like, it's not a huge action movie or anything. No, I mean more from the audience. Oh, more from the audience. Yeah, I get that, absolutely. And I also think, weirdly enough, this is a movie that benefits from just being inundated by musical scores during some of like, the montage scenes and stuff like that to really get the vibe going of what's going on. I don't always do this either in terms of like grading movies based on what they're trying to accomplish because I don't think you can grade a movie like this against a truly intense drama. And I think for what this movie is trying to do, 
it does it pretty darn well and really did it better than any other movie of its era except probably Ocean's Eleven, at least in my opinion. So, yeah, I'd give it like an 8 out of 10. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Nothing more fun than some of the supposed, as you said, comedies we've actually covered because they weren't funny. And this one at least was quite a lot of the time, not all the time. By the way, another movie that Matthew Vaughn directed, I see my notes right here, I forgot about this until right now, Kick-Ass. That's right, that was Matthew Vaughn. And I mentioned Layer Kick already, so that's what got Daniel Craig Bond. That makes a lot of sense. He's great in that movie. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's it for Snatch, period, according to the flashy opening credits. Snatch, period. In two weeks, we'll talk about Extreme Games, I guess. Ish. We're jamming this one into the sports movie category, but we make the rules here. It's The Running Man. Nice. He's running in the title. And they do run at various points. And as you said before we started recording, there's a Goldie in this. That's right. Yes. It's a quasi-realistic depiction of somebody wearing goaltender equipment. So it fits, I guess. (laughs) No, we're more on Last Boy Scout, Fast and Furious territory here where we're saying it's a sports movie. (laughs) This is probably even more spurious than those two, but I'm pushing for it. I want any excuse to do a ridiculous 1980s era Schwarzenegger movie within the bounds of a sports podcast. Back to Arnold, we covered him in his bodybuilding movie a couple years ago, I think it was. Yeah. So anyway, I am on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is on Twitter at Scoring at Movies. Tell us we're good or bad, mediocre. We're a seven and a half out of ten ourselves, or an eight out of ten, <laughs> or a three out of ten. Just say something and rate the podcast. If you want to make a comment, even better, because that does help people find the show. And you can find all 83 episodes wherever you get podcasts. Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, all those things. So... Yeah. <laughs> Take her easy there, Brad Pitt. We don't know what the hell you're saying. Don't go to England.